0: Excuse me for a while while I'm wide eyed and I'm so down cold in the middle. Passion, purpose, intention. Take the journey with Ann Richards here on Pep Talk.
1: Hi, this is Ann Richards, and welcome to Pep Talks, Passion Equals Purpose. I'm a life coach, a yoga teacher, a life enthusiast, and now a podcaster. I created this podcast so that my listeners could understand how my guests have taken their life's passion and made it their purpose. They have taken their passion and made it their job, their career, and I want you to know that you can do the same. So today, I have the pleasure of having Max Strom on the show. And Max just finished up at Inner Bliss Yoga in Cleveland, where I saw him there giving a lecture. He lectures throughout the entire world. He has written two, three books? Two.
0: Two, working on my third one.
1: Third book. Mm -hmm. Um, You can find him on his website, maxstrom.com, and he is... Of really wild background that we're going to get into right away. One of my, um, in addition to be a yoga teacher and a renowned breather, Max was a rock and roller. Correct.
0: Yes, I wouldn't word it quite like that, but yes, I plead guilty.
1: Mm-hmm. How would you word it?
0: Well, when I think of a rock and roller, I think more of a like hard rock. Um, screamers you know okay so Eddie that's, Van Halen that, yes that's my <laughs> that's my own prejudice so my band was in the early 80s and that was a different time you know and we use a lot of synthesizers and we had a European rock sound and obviously I have a low voice so it made it kind of a unique sound uh, but yeah it was definitely in the rock genre for sure
1: like uh like maybe like a Roxy music kind of feel. Mm.
0: Yeah, I guess I'd I, I say r- blend between Roxy Music and Billy Idol.
1: Oh. Hmm. Okay, taking it up a notch.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so you grew up in what city?
0: Santa Cruz, California. Lovely. Yeah, it's a, it was a really great place to grow up, especially then because uh, there was no such thing as Silicon Valley. Mm. So in the summer... People would come from San Francisco and the valley over there to the beach. It was a beach town. But only in the summer and the rest of the year it was quiet. There was no traffic, congestion whatsoever. But now, since Silicon Valley developed, it's a bedroom community for the Silicon Valley. So now it's really expensive to live there and there's no housing available in the summer. Yeah. Lots of traffic.
1: Yeah, a lot of its charm is gone. Yes. Kind of a beach surfer town, wasn't it? Yes, Mm -hmm. it was a
0: combination of... Three things: it was a beach surfer town, university town because they had the univers have the University of California, which specializes in politics and um, neo Marxism. <laughs> it's referred to, no, really, it's referred to by the locals as Moscow on the Hill. Oh, <laughs> my gosh! I say that lovingly. I have friends friends who go there, <laughs> and, and have been there. And uh, and it's also a retirement community, it used to be. Yeah. I don't think it is anymore.
1: Did you grow up in the water? Were you a, a surfer or a swimmer? Or?
0: Well, I grew up really in a, a small area, uh, even s- called Felton, Okay. Uh, outside of Felton in the countryside. I grew up pretty rural. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we, we had two acres of land and we could walk out our back door and go into the wilderness. That's cool. So I had kind of a Tom Sawyer upbringing, mm-hmm. you know, with rafting and s- catching crawdads in the creek and going on camping trips, just put on her backpack and walk away from the house, no, not having to be driven anywhere, um, you know, sandlot football and all that. That was my life. And when I got old enough to have a car, since the beach was 30 minutes away, you know, so at 16, I, I started surfing, yes.
1: hmm Um... Do you remember your first job?
0: Uh, uh, well, yeah, I was I was pretty ambitious to get out of the house. You know, the, there was a lot of strain in my house because it was just pre-divorce as I was... You know, when I was around 12, let's say, that started becoming the Cold War in the house, as I used to call it. And I used to mow lawns for the neighbors, and so I was saving money for a car, and did other work, and then finally... Uh, I bought my first pickup truck when I was 15 before I had a license. Mm. And my first job with a paycheck was working for a furniture company because I was a big kid. Uh, at 15, I was probably 6'2, you know, strong, played football. So um, it was a good summer job to move furniture around.
1: That's a hard job.
0: It hard wasn't Hard on back. It wasn't for me. No. Because I, I lifted weights when I was 15, you know. And you played <laughs>
1: football. Did you love it?
0: I really loved it for a couple of years. And I was, I was pretty good at it, if I may say so myself. I was a defensive tackle, headhunter. But uh, I'm also a sensitive person. I, I have compassion for people, even then. And I hurt quite a few people. I didn't mean to, but when you play the game, you hurt people, yeah. you know. Lawrence Taylor didn't mean to break Joe Theismann's knee backwards and in his career. He did, He thought he was horrified when he saw it, but I'm not comparing myself to him, but I hurt people and you know knee injuries back injuries one guy was unconscious for 15 minutes on the field they stopped the game and that was a turning point for me where i thought you know after five minutes i thought he may never wake up
2: mm. and
0: this is not worth that i would have felt just i don't know if i would have ever gotten over that if i would have put a boy in a coma you know yeah so i thought i think i'm gonna do something else mm-hmm. and I, d- I discovered i had some musical talent and Eventually, What instrument stage. did you play? I started with guitar, but then I went on to keyboards, synthesizers, and programming, drum machines, and so on.
1: Did you find that pretty natural?
0: Mm-hmm. Really natural.
1: Did any of your parents play?
0: My father played a little guitar, but not much.
1: Do you still play?
0: I do. I have a uh, guitar at home, and I've actually begun writing songs again. Mm-hmm. Not with an ambition to to don my leather pants again, but... Simply because I realize, after a number of years that there's a part of my brain that's quite developed that's just dormant, it's mm-hmm. like it's like shutting down a laboratory and walking away, and so I've gone into the laboratory and switched everything on again, you know and uh I love writing songs just f- just for me. It brings me great joy to do it so i I've, I've written about ten songs in the last year and a half.
1: Oh, that's awesome. You could put them on your website
0: I could It's poetry. I think it's confusing to people though because my my work is um is really about like if if i'm working with you my work's about you about Mm -hmm. me helping you it's Mm -hmm. not about me Mm -hmm. and i don't i'm not interested in creating celebrity status for myself by and here's something else i do listen to my songs (laughs) (laughs) i'm not an entertainer that's not my job
1: do you um see any hear Mm -hmm. any musicians today that you like a lot
0: yeah many uh i i I have to admit like a lot of people i still listen to things that i listened to when i was 17 yeah that's true but i have discovered some bands in the last 10 years that i like i like the band rome okay which is a funny name for a band that comes from luxembourg (laughs) i don't know but they're called rome okay and that singer also has a low voice but i think he's quite good and uh a uh, recent British band I like is called London Grammar. I like them very much.
1: I have a song or two by them yeah, that they, I play.
0: Yes, they. Uh, I think their first album was the biggest. Like they were the biggest new act of the year okay. about four years ago, I think. Okay. They have two albums out, I think. Yeah. I'm not positive. That's why I keep saying. And then I think, you
1: like some classic rock. Yeah, some. Mm-hmm.
0: And I, but I, I have a quite ec- eclectic taste, so I listen to a lot of. Classical music, movie soundtrack music, uh, Bulgarian women's choir, esoteric, Bulgarian women's choir. I don't
1: don't listen to that. Should I?
0: (laughs) Yes. Arabic (laughs) desert music. Oh, that's cool. I listen to things from all over the world.
1: That's a good reminder. I haven't listened to that genre in quite a while. It's it's amazing. Arabic.
0: Desert. Mm, Like, for example, the Moroccan uh, Berber music or the Bedouin music from Mm -hmm. Saudi. Mm.
1: Good tip. Did you go to college?
0: No, actually. It uh, often surprises people because I published a few books. But uh, I guess the technical term is autodidact, which an autodidact is someone who's self-educated. Okay. So when I was 15, I started reading, I guess college level is the easiest way of saying it, uh, Mm -hmm. comparative religion. That's the first thing I really delved into, philosophy, comparative religion. I was educating myself on subjects that my high school didn't supply for mm-hmm. me. I had a real hunger for understanding the world and life, and uh, I hated high school because, it, in hindsight, I don't think it was a very good high school. It was right. a, kind of a low-budget rural high school with a lot of really sleepy teachers who barely barely showed up mentally for their job. Mm-hmm. So I was frustrated, uh, intellectually frustrated, and so. I graduated a year early, so I was 16 when I graduated, and I wasn't, at that time, interested in going back into a school system, and uh, just kept studying, and then I got involved in music.
1: So that was your next step, Mm -hmm. the music world. Mm -hmm. And that took you, that was a long time, correct?
0: It, It was. I took two years off at some point, which is a long story, but it was about 13 years of my life, I'd say, so into my... I was about
1: 32. So that's, that's a huge passion in your life.
0: Yeah, I thought I'd be doing it my whole life. I, yeah. even did, I did one movie soundtrack. Um, I just I only did one because I just thought, I don't want to do that again. You didn't enjoy I, the I movies. I, I, no, I love movies. I That was my next job. I, I was a screenwriter. But I didn't like being told what to do by a director. Uh. <laughs> I didn't like being the puppet from yeah. the, the Puppet Master. I like creating music but not someone says oh don't do that and not that I thought, but you're not a musician you don't know anything about this so i just realized that's not the right job so
1: you were still in california mm-hmm. southern california central now you're in so you stayed in near where you grew up yes and started the musical career yeah. and then got into the movies
0: yeah I, I did move to los angeles i did my first record in 1982 in los angeles and i did my second record in 1984 uh, but I moved back to Santa Cruz because it was easier to, to be stationed there, to live there less expensive, mm-hmm. but we toured up and down California mainly so mainly we were a California band I guess, but we were on a lot of radio stations in the southwest and then um, I met a, a a woman who was an, uh, an actress, a TV actress and we had a romance for I don't know, a little less than a year, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, she worked a lot. She was a pretty famous TV actress at that time. And uh, one day she was reading a script, and afterwards she threw it in the trash, and I picked it up. I'd never seen a screenplay before. And I was a real movie buff. I mean, I had gone to hundreds of art house films, there, mm-hmm. were, there were some really good art house thea- theaters where I lived. And so I'd buy passes, and I'd go see like one every night for four nights in a row. So I'd see the German, Italian, French films, the, yeah. the Japanese films, you know, Kurosawa and so on. So I was really into art films mainly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I never considered doing that as a profession. But everyone always told me they were surprised how much I could remember films. Yeah. So if I saw a film, I could tell you entire reams of dialogue. I could tell you almost scene by scene how the movie played out. It's just how my memory works. If you tell me a phone number right now, I will not remember it in 30 seconds. I don't remember numbers, but I remember story.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: So back to the girlfriend. So I looked at the screenplay, which was written by one of the top screenwriters in Hollywood at that time. And I read it, and I thought, I could do this. (laughs) That's exactly what I thought. I thought, this looks really exciting, but it doesn't look that difficult. So I wrote a screenplay. By the time I finished it, she and I had already broken up. But I moved down to Los Angeles to see if I could sell it. And it was really funny because I, I registered at the Writers Guild. And um, you know you register to protect it, so no one can steal it from you. And I don't remember what it cost, $100 or something. And I asked the lady, I said, how many screenplays are registered every year? And she said, 45,000, approximately. Oh. And I said, how many are made? She said, 90. At that time, this was 1987. And I said, okay. <laughs> I'm going <gonna laughs> to take toss those right into the ring. <laughs> yeah, I'll take. I'm moving from the most insecure business in the world, the music business, yes. to the second most insecure yes. business, screenwriting.
1: So did you get it? Did they make that movie?
0: I did uh, sell the rights to that movie, but it was never made. But I did have um, eight things made. So I made a living for about eight or nine years as a screenwriter.
1: So musician and then writer.
0: Screenwriter, yeah.
1: Do you still write? I mean, your books.
0: Yeah, I I, I haven't written fiction in a long time. Right. But I'm planning on writing another book of fiction. Um, uh, Well, it'll be my first book of fiction. I've only done screenplays. I want to do a, a fiction book soon, following up the one I'm working on now.
1: So in the background of all this, had you started to get into yoga? Had you started to get into that world at all?
0: When I was a musician, even before I was a musician, I started meditation. That was my first discipline, Mm -hmm. and I loved that. And then I found qigong, which is essentially Chinese yoga. Okay. And we had a really good teacher in Santa Cruz at that time, but then he moved away, and there there was no other teacher. So... I did Qigong for about three years quite seriously and then it gradually over the years fizzled out and as music took over my life and there was no teacher and I, w- I wasn't that disciplined to be honest. So it wasn't until I was a screenwriter and I was living in Santa Monica and I met a woman <laughs> who got me into something else. You know, yeah. Women will get men to do things when the relationship is new. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Ask anybody. Mm-hmm. It's true. This is true. Yeah. Uh, two years later, they're not going to do it. Yeah. But, but when it's early on, they want to please you. So mm-hmm. so I, I, I met this woman, and she was a yoga teacher and a nutritionist. She said, I'm still not sure she was a nutritionist. But anyway, we had been going out maybe two months, and it was my birthday. And we woke up in the morning, and she said, I have a special surprise for you for your birthday, and I said, well, "What?" I was pleased, you know, intrigued, and she said, "I'm going to take you to your first yoga class," and my face just fell.
1: Yippee! Yeah. No. <laughs> and,
0: and it wasn't that I, I, you know, I told you my background. I was very interested in philosophy, religion. I did qigong, but my impression of what yoga was from living in Santa Cruz was that it was a guru-based stretch class for women. Got it. And especially the guru-based part I wasn't mm-hmm. interested in. Right. I wasn't going to wear Because the, the main yoga teacher in Santa Cruz in the, that time was a guru with a cult following, and they would wear pendants of his, with his face on it around their necks. So that was my limited exposure. Wow. But I went and changed my life, and I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe how good I felt. I couldn't believe how many people said, "You look different. You, s- you seem happier. You seem lighter. You, you're funnier. You're, you don't have this dark cloud around you anymore." And um,
1: after one class, <laughs> after one class, <laughs> really? Yeah,
0: because I had a birthday party that night, uh-huh. and people said, everybody that came over said, "You look different. What's going on?" And but then over time, it was more dramatic, where people would notice and. Um, so I'll, within a month, I was practicing six days a week. Mm-hmm. And uh, within six months, she and I broke up, which was fine. But I stayed with the yoga. And I happened to live four blocks from what became the, the most important yoga school in the United States. Which was? Yoga Works, which is now a huge chain. I was going to
1: say, isn't that the chain now? Yeah,
0: it's a huge chain. So
1: it started out just as one studio? With one room. Oh.
0: And when I started, they- Is it still there? Yes. I, st- I still teach workshops there occasionally. Okay. Um, when I started there, they, were, they had just opened their second room, just opened it. And uh, so then I was writing, and at the end of the day, I would practice, write, and practice. And I just loved it, and it, it was such, so life changing. It also became a, my social world yeah. as well.
1: So, th- when did you make the decision to become a teacher?
0: Well I did this uh, this exercise, well, let me back up. In my screenwriting world I, I had a few lower budget things made. I never had the screenplays that I really love that I wrote on spec as we say, on speculation, made. But, but what kept happening was they would read it, the producers would read it and say, well we can't make this, it's not commercial enough, but you can write. How would you like to write this little budget of action film? Mm-hmm. We'll pay you this amount of money. So it was either that or get a day job. So I thought, at least I'm honing my craft, and my friends will never know. There was no internet, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you <laughs> don't know what you're doing. Now you can look me up <laughs> and find everything I ever did. But at that time, I thought, It'll, it's just practicing my craft. And, sure. I, and I don't regret that, but there's nothing I'd, I'd be excited for you to see. Anyway, um, but one company had made some money off a couple of screenplays that me and my writing partner, I had a writing partner for a while, um, we, we wrote together and what happened was basically one of the producers said if you bring me another screenplay we like you can direct it so I was getting positioned to start directing films but at the same time I had been doing so much yoga, six days a week doing workshops, learning, the the glitter of Hollywood was just wearing off. I just didn't believe it anymore. And I was so happy with almost nothing. Mm -hmm. I was just happy every day that I didn't feel like I had those hungers, that ambition to achieve fame, things like that, wealth. Mm -hmm. It just fell away. And so I decided to reorganize my life. I wasn't sure what I was gonna do next. Meanwhile, I kept writing to make a living. But what happened was I I did this exercise that a friend of mine told me about, which is the first exercise in my first book. And I say this, I didn't invent this, this comes from long ago. But basically, basically (coughs) you consult your peers. And that means that, let's say you ask five people two questions. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you think my strengths, skills, and talents are? And how do you think I'm self-sabotaging myself? Mm -hmm. And if you do that with a group of people, you get a lot of really interesting information. Yeah. So I did that. And several of my friends said, well, why aren't you teaching yoga? And I just thought that was the funniest thing because I'd never even considered it. I didn't have A, the self-esteem, B, I'm kind of an introvert. Uh, I didn't think I was quote unquote good enough or educated enough, even though i practiced six days a week for three years, three and a half years. And they just kept pushing me. And then one of my friends set up a class in his apartment. And that's where I started teaching in my friend's apartment, you know, to five to ten people.
1: Ah, Isn't that wild to think about now?
0: Yeah. That was January 1995, to answer your question.
1: Oh, my gosh. 1995. So were you still in L.A.? Mm Mm-hmm. So then did you develop a following? Those people would come to you.
0: Yeah, well, for about a year I taught in his apartment twice a week, and a house of another friend twice a week. And it started growing, so I started renting out a a place where they had aerobics and tap dancing classes. And I taught there, I think, two or three times a week. And then the owner of YogaWorks came to see my class to see if she wanted to put me on the cover list, the substitution list. And I was pretty strategic about it because I approached her just before the holidays. And whether there's going to be the most vacancies for sure so that i was okay and uh so they hired me and i through that holiday season from thanksgiving to new year's i taught about 16 classes a week and by that time and by the the new year everybody had taken my class basically they offered me schedule the worst times on the on the schedule mm-hmm. and uh yeah, it went really fast for me actually. By within six months I I think my classes were third most populated in the school and within a year or second I I was I was doing very well.
1: So then was there a point at which you said I don't want to do that anymore?
0: No, not exactly. From the, I, I still do that to an extent, but it's evolved. I'm a bit of an innovator. Maybe mm-hmm. that that that's obvious at this point. And um, I really started focusing more on the breathing because I noticed that the breath work when I practice really affected me emotionally. That's why there was so much emotional change in me. So I, I became known as the breathing guy. You know, mm-hmm. they would say, "Max, oh, he'll make you breathe if you go to his class." And so I really worked on improving that beyond how I was taught because I thought it could be improved upon. More people could do it. I could, because a lot of people were very resistant or they didn't understand, and so I really worked on that. And after teaching for five or so years, I opened my own center in Los Angeles. It was called Sacred Movement Center for Yoga and Healing. It was in on the border of Venice and Santa Monica, and it was the biggest um, yoga center in Western United States. And we had a lot of really well-known teachers teaching there. We had, uh, um, I think I taught the most classes on the schedule, but we had uh, Eric Schiffman, Rod Stryker, Shiva Ray, um, Micheline Barry, uh, martial arts yoga teacher named Matthew Cohen, and then Sean Korn. These all were people who taught there. Mm. I hired Sean Korn just before I sold the school. But I had known them all from yoga works and other places. But um, as my practice developed, my personal practice and my teaching practice, I really realized that I I really wasn't happy completely with Ashtanga Yoga. I really wasn't happy with Iyengar Yoga or any other yoga. Now, there were only a few of us that had started creating what is now called Vinyasa Yoga. Mm. It started at Yoga Works. It started, I think, in nineteen ninety-two. I would say the first person who started taking Ashtanga and modifying it, creating flow yoga or vinyasa, was Steve Ross. I, I give him credit for being the first innovator to do that. <laughs> and and he and he was formerly a professional musician. He used to play with um, Lindsay Buckingham of Fleetwood Mac. He was in.
1: I have to tell you a funny story. So. When I started yoga, my kids were little, and so I'd get up at 6 a.m. My son was a baby, and Oprah had a network. Right. And the 6 a.m. yoga show was was Steve Ross. Yes. And I had no idea of what. I just knew there's a guy, and those people are so lucky because they're in his class. And I would do that every morning, and that's how I started that's watching hard. him, and he would play good music, mm-hmm. and he would talk about it, because mm-hmm. he knew it, mm-hmm. and he would say funny things, and I just, it was so friendly, mm-hmm. and and it was just, it was awesome. Yeah, That's how I, that's like essentially how I started yoga. Then mm-hmm. I mean, then I went, I went to Tammy's, but m- a lot of the time I couldn't get to the classes because mm-hmm. of the kids. Right. But he was great.
0: Yeah, he's, he was very popular.
1: So- the the one on the tv was he that did
0: he did the one season of that i I don't know why they discontinued he never told yeah. me whether it was his choice or their choice i have no idea if they still play it i think on the oxygen channel you can something.
1: still find some of it
0: yeah you can find it but but that was a little later that was more like 2000 1999 2000 when he did that yeah i'm talking 1992
1: is when you had started with him?
0: No, yeah, he he created, the, oh, I'd say the first version of flow yoga, mm-hmm. and then Shiva Ray and I took it and we made it our own and continued creating it. That's where flow yoga started, right there. Thank
1: goodness. And
0: then it Thank out. you. You're welcome.
1: <laughs> because and, I love it.
0: And within about um, six years, I I basically thought. Yeah, that's not working out. And I started changing it again. And so I, I created my own style, which is a little bit of flow, but it's very slow. And um, I have a video. It's called Strength, Grace, and Healing that I released in 2004, which which did really well. So it looks like a lot of the same postures as in flow yoga, but instead of just people moving and moving and moving without with no alignment,
2: mm-hmm.
0: we teach alignment. And we go slow, more like Qigong,, mm-hmm. and we breathe, and it 's quite transformational, but i, I got I got some disillusion with the yoga culture, not yoga, not the not yoga, not the practice, the culture it got sillier and sillier, and there are so many scandals amongst so many teachers. yeah that's that
1: just another one.:
0: Yes, oh really, which one now?:
1: It was on the cover of the New York Times Style section on Let's Sunday. Say. <coughs> just a whole talking about two teachers in particular and a whole
0: yeah, and a lot of people who've never practiced yoga will read these stories of scandals and then they never try, mm-hmm. it, it, it hurts all of us so uh, I I got to where I would, wouldn't tell people what I did because I'd say I teach yoga and they'd roll their eyes you know, we don't have the best reputation
2: mm-hmm.
0: so uh, Anyway, I, I I really transformed the way I was teaching, and after five years, I decided I'm going to sell my school. I'm going to teach this how I really want to teach it, and I'm going to start a- saying yes to all these invitations I'm getting to teach all over the world, mm. from China through Europe, the Middle East. So I sold it. It's it was it continued on for I think another ten or twelve years, and uh, I became a solo person, just managing myself. Mm-hmm and started saying yes to invitations and that's how I ended up here in Cleveland yeah because Tammy invited me to mm-hmm. to be here
1: are you still slightly disillusioned with the culture
0: very much so yes but I, I don't want to be con- condemning about it because I think when if you don't like something change it
1: absolutely you know
0: so I've taken matters in my own hands and I've created something different, which I call Interaxis, which is a blend of Qigong yoga movement therapy. It's, it's breath-based and I design it so really anybody can do it. Mm-hmm. And we get tremendous results with people feeling so much better, who, people who have stress, people who have anxiety, depression. And concurrent with the story I'm telling you, As you know, the amount of people with anxiety or Mm. something like it has skyrocketed since I started teaching. So I started realizing that what I'm teaching now is more important than ever. Yeah. And so that's why I get invited now to to speak to doctors. Mm. So my work has progressed enough to where I, I speak at medical conferences. And I was even speaking at the World Government Summit in Dubai to world leaders about this.
1: So when you're asked to do something like that, where what do you direct your talk to? Is it still breathing, breathing?
0: Yeah, first of all, I wear a, a suit, or at least almost a suit, no, mm-hmm. no tie, but I, I dress like they dress. Sure. And my hair is short. Mm-hmm. I don't have a nose ring. Mm-hmm. I, I, and It's fine out there if you wear a nose ring. I don't care. But if you want 90% of the world to take you seriously, don't wear a nose ring. Mm-hmm. If you're happy with the 10%, and then dress however you want but, <laughs> but that's part of the problem is there's there is a um, if people described a yoga teacher it would be easy yeah you know we know we know what the classic type of clothing is anyway so I, I started dressing like they dress and my hair is short and I talk to them in very plain language I don't use any Sanskrit and then they're willing to listen corporate corporate people are willing to listen. They're willing to try breathing because I say, it'll make you feel better in 10 minutes, not someday. Then they feel better in 10 minutes. Right. Then they trust me, and then we continue.
1: So it's, it's breathing.
0: It's breathing, but I teach it in a particular way mm-hmm. that other people don't use. Oh,
1: absolutely. Mm. Um, do you have a population, a segment of the population, that you enjoy teaching to the most currently
0: that I enjoy teaching the most I really like teaching people from 18 to 108 <laughs> I, mean, I don't really enjoy teaching uh, young teenagers and, or children I like because I don't like to modify change my languaging for them or so on mm-hmm. but I had a 13 year old in one of my three day workshops the other day and she was amazing um, but population I don't know I, lo- I love working with beginners still people who don't know anything I really enjoy watching them come to life when they discover how it makes them feel. I enjoy working with advanced yoga people, soldiers. Mm. I like working with sincere people who are motivated mainly. Yeah. I don't care what, I don't care if they're prisoners or housewives or anything. Yeah. I don't care.
1: Did you work with athletes?
0: I have worked with athletes. It wasn't my specialty, but I, I did have a, for example, um, one of my students, went to the Sydney Olympics in 2003, was it? I worked with him quite a bit for a couple of years. And I've worked with some world-class martial artists. Mm. Um, like uh, one one lady, um, what was her name? Cynthia Rothrock, world champion weapons uh, martial artist of the world. She cool. was a student for a year or two. and Yeah, I've worked with some athletes. But because of the nature of w- my focus, which is now more emotionally and psychologically based. That's not I'm not the first person an athlete would come to.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you take anyone's class?
0: I don't anymore. You know, at some point you know enough. I'm not saying that I don't have anything to learn. What I study more now is what's the latest they know about breathing, how to, the lungs are there any new neurological studies on the brain regarding breathing?
2: Mm.
0: Uh, and I study more uh, psychology, sure, um, trauma, crisis, communication. Mm-hmm. These are the things I study now. I don't need anybody else to show me how to do down dog.
1: Right? Do you? Um,
0: uh, just before you, since your audience might not know this, I've been practicing for twenty-five years. Right. At some point, you know.
1: Yeah. Do you So music and you writing and practicing yoga Is there anything else you love to do?
0: I love history I study history um, I love to travel and look at really old things Really old cities mm-hmm. or I love to go to museums
1: What's your favorite city?
0: That's a hard question I don't really think so much in favorites Uh, can I give you a couple of cities yeah I love uh, architecturally and the feel of it I love Amsterdam I love Paris but I loved it more 10 years ago Mm -hmm. it's changing fast Uh, I love the city I live in Utrecht in the Netherlands is an astonishing city beautiful Mm -hmm. cobblestones canals cathedral bells the whole thing that's where I live now um Let me just think for a second. I love Vancouver. For a big city Vancouver, Canada is amazing. Uh, Nuremberg, Germany. Konstanz, Germany, which is on the lake. Um, Let's see. Basel, Germany is really nice. Oh
1: my gosh, most of these cities I've never been to. Mm-mm. Well, I
0: get in, fortunately I get invited to go to these places. Yeah. Do you ever Hong turn Kong. down I liked Hong Kong. Oh you did? Yeah.
1: You had to be pretty tall there.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty tall and all. Did
1: were they staring at you?
0: Yeah, more so in Beijing. I've taught I've in Beijing.
1: People tell lot. me stories about how they just stare at you. Mm-hmm. Or if you're maybe you have blonde hair. Yeah. But I would imagine your height and your skin color and they're just staring at you.
0: Especially since I started going there in 2006 when they still didn't have much tourism in there so it was more unusual mm-hmm. now that i mean when i went there in 2006 there weren't that many nice hotels in beijing there were a few now they're, they're all there all, yeah. t- all the chains are there now.
1: yeah um do you ever turn down any requests to go anywhere
0: i do i do um i i, I am i am fortunate that i'm invited to more places than i can go
1: Mm. okay so So it's more of a scheduling thing.
0: No. It's also that maybe I've been to that place enough times and it's really far away mm-hmm. and uh, the jet lag's really severe. I'd yeah. rather really go over there where I like it more and the jet lag is less severe. Yeah. Jet lag's probably the worst challenge of my life because oh, yeah. because I've been for the last few years travelling overseas five times a year. So that's heavy jet lag both ways, so that's ten times a year. Mhm. You know, 8, 10, 12 hour time difference. I'm not talking about one or two hours.
1: Yeah. Do you have a way to cope with it?
0: (laughs) breathing My practice. (laughs) Do my practice.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Do you ever watch any television? I do. Do you have a favorite show?
0: I have a favorite show.
1: Um, Well, you must have because you like the movies.
0: Yeah, I I still watch films, I like science fiction. You do. And I also like period pieces, you know, things from, let's say, pre-1950. And I like um, things from the Middle Ages a lot, Renaissance, Mm -hmm. Elizabethan era. I prefer stories from that genre. Um, I'm trying to think of something that was particularly profound that I saw recently. I don't know why I'm drawing a blank, Uh, something will pop, it. I'll scream scream out in the middle of the night.
1: And we talked a little bit about music, do you ever go to concerts?
0: I hardly ever do, Mm -hmm. I hardly ever do, there aren't that many concerts, there aren't that many groups that I would like to go see live, Uh, I don't really like big crowds and I don't really like loud sounds, I'm a little bit, I'm a lot audio sensitive, people tell me, this sounds. I know this sounds a little creepy, but it's true. Like I can hear some things. My, my range of hearing is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Example, one time I was with a friend, and he opened a store in a mall. And he told me to come see it. So I went to the mall, and as soon as I walked in, I said, What is that sound? It was this piercing high-frequency sound. And he said, What are you talking about? I said, That horrible sound. You don't hear it? He said, No. I said, well, I hear it. And he looked at me like I had lost my mind. And uh, we were walking to a store, and then a man came up to greet him. And he said, he said, hi, Carl. And he says, Carl said, hi, this is my friend Max. I said, hi. I said, do you hear that sound? And he looked at me, and he goes, yeah, it's our burglar alarm system. He says, but humans aren't supposed to be able to hear it. It's just, it's just, it's just above the human. Seriously. Yeah. So He's, you
1: have that dog level of hearing?
0: No, not not like a dog. But <laughs> he said he said some like one out of a thousand people could hear. You're not the only one, but oh. it's very rare, or, or we wouldn't have it. But so I, I so I don't like screeching sounds, really loud sounds. I'm very sensitive to sound. So if uh, so if something is really really loud, I don't like to. Did you when
1: you taught? At your studio, did you play music?
0: Did I perform music, you mean?
1: No, did you play during class? Yes,
0: actually, uh, that's one of the things the three of us did. Steve Ross, Shiva Ray, and I, we all played music in our class. And our classes filled up, so people thought, well, it must be the music. So everybody started playing music, and it became a thing. Yeah. And now it's normal. Oh, yeah. But after 10 years of playing music in every single class, I stopped playing music and haven't played it since. Because it, well, it's. I'll tell you why. Because I started talking. Mm -hmm. In other words, instead of just shouting out postures Mm -hmm. and maybe a joke now and then, I actually wanted to teach people something, and I wanted them to hear the sound of their own breath. Yeah. So once I started talking, where I started turning down the music and speaking, turning it back up, and finally I thought, that's it. I'm just gonna not use it.
1: Yeah. Do you ever get back there to L.A.
0: Almost every year, I'll do some workshops there. But do you I
1: ever see Steve Ross? Or
0: he actually Steve left, um, <laughs> left the town, sold the studio, left town. I hear he's in Bali, and, and he seems to have kind of disappeared. He seems to be kind of be to be in hiding. You can't even find him on the internet. Where he is?
1: Oh my gosh, that's so mysterious. Mm-hmm. I feel like I almost signed up for a workshop. It was through a meditation. Um, a place in LA now where they do meditation
0: yeah I think he's been center. gone for three years
1: and he was gonna leave it in, and it was in Bali uh, so it would make sense I didn't know that that's pr- where he was you yeah. know living yeah, I haven't I so. been to Bali
0: I haven't either yeah, but I'm not close we're not friends we were just colleagues mm-hmm. um, so now I you know I moved almost one year ago to the Netherlands and I just love it so much. The People are a little different there. They're a little hardier. Um, there are no princesses in the Netherlands because they all ride their bike in the winter, in the rain.
1: Princess? Yes. What is that supposed to mean?
0: You've never heard the term princess? If I
1: drive a car, I'm not a princess? That's
0: not what I'm saying. <laughs> I drive a car also. But I don't now. I, I don't have a car over there.
2: <laughs>
0: My point is, if you take an entire, think about Cleveland for a 2nd Mm-hmm let's let's just say everybody stopped driving their car yeah think about what it would take for you to, to get to work every morning on a bicycle in the rain in the, in when it's 30 degrees sometimes for your whole life starting right. at four years old school everything yeah it's a hardy society
1: I like that description hardy Yeah. is that is it just a a cultural thing they don't they're not interested in cars
0: well, a, a lot of cities um, throughout Europe, the streets are too small for cars. Mm-hmm. And, but, but you can make nice bicycle trails. And the Netherlands is so flat that it's easy to go longer distances. So, you know, if you're in a hilly area going 15 miles, you don't want to do that every day. But you could go 15 miles on a perfectly flat surface. No problem. It'll take is, you an is hour. Is Amsterdam
1: it the same way with the bike culture a yeah. little bit? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I remember talking with someone about that. I, I I love it. So you do the same thing? You ride a bike? I do.
0: I, I walk most places, but I also have a bike. I ride a bike. Long distance, take a train. Mm-hmm. They have great train systems.
1: It's so civilized.
0: It is. So now when I go to other cities in Europe, I train. I don't fly mm-hmm. most of the time.
1: That's lovely. Mm. Do you, uh, you teach in Utrecht regularly?
0: No. No, I, 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 I live seven minutes walk from the studio, but I, but still I'm a visiting teacher, so I'll teach there. I think next year I'm there four times, mm. and I'm in Amsterdam once or twice, mm-hmm. and and that's it. Then I, I teach around Europe. Mm-hmm. I even took a train to uh, to London from all the way from.
1: Whoa, oh, that's Holland. a long one.
0: But it was only five and a half hours. Oh. I, I penciled that out if I would have. Gone to the airport, yes. waited for my flight, yes. et cetera, It would have been around five and a half hours.
1: Yeah, so. that's how it is in this country a little bit. You that's know right. what I mean? Because yeah. essentially, DC is what a six-hour drive. That's right, and that's and why I'm driving decide instead of flying. Go to the airport and wait, and, and it
0: might be two flights. Yeah, you might have to fly yeah. to Detroit first or something.
1: Do you see yourself um, changing your path again in the future? Is there something? Beyond what you are doing now, that mm-hmm. you could see moving into,
0: I've gone more into public speaking,
1: mm-hmm.
0: where I'm actually hired now sometimes to speak to to conferences, like I said, where I don't even lead breathing; I might refer to it, but I just speak. And you know, I've done three TED talks, mm-hmm. and uh, I I do talks in other countries like uh, Saudi Arabia. I've been to Saudi Arabia three times in the last two years, and they're going through an amazing cultural revolution there people are over here aren't unaware of how much and how fast it's changing there uh, people over in america seem to think e- anybody in the middle east like wears a, a suicide vest as every day as, a, as their mode of clothing yeah but it's such a sophisticated culture over there and they watch the same tv we do mm-hmm. you know the, the number one tv show in saudi Arabia is game of thrones
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> isn't that funny yeah it's strange
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> they watch this, you know, and Netflix, HBO, they get it all over there. Yeah. It's the same, essentially, th- they're so similar. And uh, anyway, I really like going to the, the Middle East in general. I love the people there, and the food there is amazing, and it's all changing very quickly. And there are some really nice customs they have that, uh, which I lecture about, that I would like us to adopt here. For example, the Arabic culture from, from Lebanon all the way to Saudi and maybe beyond. I haven't been everywhere. Um, they're much better at taking care of each other when there's grief. If someone passes away, they will, the whole family will show up. Or if you are in the hospital, something serious, you open your eyes and you have 50 people waiting for you. And that's life-changing, you know, if mm-hmm. you feel I'm that loved. Mm-hmm. That, you know, that they're, they're, They have to chase my families and friends out of my room
2: because
0: mm-hmm. they want to be right next to me. So often in this country and in Europe, someone will be in to get cancer surgery, and, th- and their spouse is the only one there. And they might not e- have even told anybody that, that's, that they have this problem. Right. So we have to isolate ourselves more in the Western culture. Mm-hmm. These are things I lecture about now.
1: Yeah. It's important.
0: It's one of the most important things.
1: If that could be, if we could adopt that. I think in this country it used to be that way. It used when to. When the immigrants and, yes. you know, your parents came from Europe, and they didn't know yes. anyone, so they all stayed together, yes. and it was more like a village.
0: And there was no TV, and there was no AC, mm-hmm. so and the hot nights, you'd, they'd go out on their porches and talk to each other.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So yeah, the modern conveniences haven't necessarily brought us together.
0: It's a real, what do they call it, a mixed bag.
1: Yeah, right?
0: They brought great blessings, for mm-hmm. sure, and, and great curses also.
1: Would you ever move back to this country?
0: Sure, yeah, if, if the, uh, I'm, not, I'm not exiling myself, but at the moment I, I had the opportunity, mm-hmm. and so I took it, and, and I love it. I, I wish I had done it years earlier. And who knows, you know, I'm, I'm single now, maybe I'll meet someone over there and get married, which would mean I could get a passport. <laughs> Which means I could live anywhere in Europe, not just. The That's
1: exciting.
0: So we'll see what happens. Well, Who knows if, what's in store?
1: If do you like the women that aren't princesses?
0: I do, and they're very tall as well. So you're I'm in the I right w- place. <laughs> so I, I'm six <laughs> foot six, and uh, I went out to lunch the other day with three women—not a date, just a business lunch. Yeah. But all three women were over six feet tall. Just as an example, I've met two women taller than me.
1: The head is wild.
0: It is. It's kind of bizarre. I'm How many
1: women here have you met that are taller than you? Nobody. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so you <laughs> went to the right place. Yeah, they're tall. That, like, is a great um, demographic choice. I think so. Did you Google that?
0: No, no. I, I, I've been <laughs> teaching there for 13 years. And
1: you now see it. Yeah, obviously. to miss. Yeah, yeah.
0: That's <laughs> so it's, curious. Everybody there has long femur bones.
1: Do they play yeah. basketball?
0: Basketball is starting to pick up steam there, the where I think they will become a formidable basketball country. But that's in American football, not at all, really. Um, soccer is their sport in Europe, mm. as you know. Mm-hmm. But they could do well in basketball. My landlord's five inches taller than me, oh he's like gosh. 6'11. So
1: long femur bones? Yeah, long
0: thigh bones. Long, they have long arms. The guys have big hands. <coughs> Yeah, I saw two women sitting at a cafe, and their knees hit each other under the table. What is your What is your <laughs> ancestral background? Well, my father, my father was an immigrant. He immigrated from Germany in 1952, so he was German, obviously, and partly French. Was he tall? No, five of five ten. Mm-hmm. But he, there was a lot of hunger. Yeah. He thinks had he eaten well when he was a teenager, instead of food rationing, which he had to suffer. Uh, he would have been taller, he's probably right. My mother was only about five, five, but she had five brothers all over six feet. So, I assume I get the tall gene from them, Mm -hmm. Scottish and French.
1: Interesting. So, thank you so much.
0: You're welcome. I would suggest
1: to to the listeners, viewers, to go pick up. well, both books are fantastic. Life Worth Breathing and There is No App for Happiness, which are both on Amazon, correct?
0: Yes, thank you.
1: And also, maybe your website? Do you sell them there?
0: Well, it would direct you to the to Amazon. Okay. But, but on our website, we have uh, resources for breathing, obviously. Mm-hmm. I have an app that's called Strategic Breathing. We released it just a few months ago. We designed it for the military. I have an online course called Breathe to Heal.
1: Okay. And that's accessible where?
0: From my website. Okay. And if you just wanted an encapsulation, if you're interested in just what's, what I was teachings about, mm-hmm. I would look at my TED Talk called Breathe to Heal. Yes. On YouTube.
1: Yes. That's great. How did you enjoy the TED Talk experience?
0: Well, the first one I was terrified. The second one I was somewhat terrified. <laughs> but I finally figured out sort of how to do it. Mm -hmm. And your message has to be so clear to make them really work. And I could do a whole talk on giving TED Talks. I mean, right now I could talk to you for an hour. Yeah. But the third one was the charm. Breathe to heal. Breathe to heal. And it really struck a nerve. We have 1.5 million views now.
1: Yeah. That's so cool.
0: Yeah. I mean, considering that the video has no naked women or women in bikinis, has no puppies. Okay. Nothing funny. Nobody falling down. Okay. With 1.5 million views, that's pretty good for something like talking about breathing is, and grief.
1: That is. <laughs> it's actually very mature. It is. And high level intellectualism.
0: Well, well thank you, but I, I would just say I struck a nerve because people know that we're in trouble socially. We know that we're suffering from anxiety and depression and yeah. opioid addiction, and suicide is going up. And our, you know, the, demog- the demographic that has the highest rate of suicide are doctors.
1: My guess is it's It's late teen, early 20. It's
0: doctors. That's what I'm telling you. Oh, doctors. Yeah, physicians are the profession with the highest rate of suicide in America. Hmm. What does it tell you about a culture when their healers are taking their own life? Yeah. More than anybody else. Yeah. More than soldiers.
1: That the meds aren't working.
0: Yeah, that's part of the message.
1: And pressure? Why, Why are they taking their lives? depression
0: <clears throat> most of the doctors in america i meet are on antidepressants anti-anxiety mm-hmm. prescription drugs and sleep medication it's it is a um, <coughs> excuse me it is a profession of an enormous risk what's the word uh, the term it's called uh, low margin for error okay and you know, if you think about a surgeon yeah they make a s- mistake it's dire and airline pilots is the second most, most, they have the second highest rate of suicide. Same thing, Mm. low margin for error. So I think that's partly it. I think there are other mitigating circumstances as well. But it's definitely something that we need to look at.
1: Wow. And I don't know that, you know, all the medication, which is supposed to help, it's really not.
0: It seems to be helping some people. But in general, I think we can agree that we're fortunate that we live in a time when we have medication for these things, but no one wants to live off it the rest of their life. And nobody wants their 15-year-old that's just started taking anti-anxiety drugs to live that the way the rest of their life. Right. And so what we offer is uh, our breathing exercises you can do for 15 to 30 minutes a day. It's easy to learn. And it's anxiety will not be a problem in your life anymore.
1: Right. I agree. Well, thank you, Max. If you have you. any other um, questions, again, refer to his website, maxstrom.com. If you have any questions for me, you can check it out at anrichardsinspires.com, where I have links to the YouTube version of this and where to find the podcast on Apple. Send me your questions or emails, comments, or curiosities. I thank you so much for listening. And uh see you soon. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Anne. Thank you. Pleasure. I've never been so
2: that seem so strong. Yeah, that speaks so long. I've never been so long. Excuse me for a
0: while while I'm wild.